Welcome to the Old Testament Reading Plan Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focusing on Numbers 32 through 36, along with Deuteronomy 1. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I've linked all of these in the show notes. And if questions come up during the course of your reading, please feel free to ask them at bit.ly slash capital A lowercase sk hyphen, capital O, capital T. Once again, that's bit.ly slash ask hyphen OT. As we conclude the book of Numbers, everything seems to be teed up and ready for the Israelites to take possession of the promised land, to drive out the Canaanites, to build a holy kingdom. Moses shows himself to be a shrewd chief, appealing to all the people have been through in order to cast a vision for their future. Much of the end of Numbers involves long-range planning, long-term thinking, and we get a sense of that in Deuteronomy as well. But all long-range thinking and long-range planning has an element of guesswork to it. And before we get into the text today, I think there's a conversation worth having about how those of us who are living in the West, particularly in America, have received the vision that Moses lays out for the Israelites. Because we've received it in a variety of ways, not all of which are good. Uh, and, And it's important to separate what is being commanded in Scripture from how we have uh, uh, appropriated it in our time. Now, Americans have thought of ourselves as a mirror of the Hebrew people in many ways, going all the way back to the early pilgrims who settled from Europe. Many wanted freedom to practice faith how they understood it. They saw the rulers of their home countries as Pharaoh, persecuting them for falling outside the margins of acceptable Christianity at that time. America, in many ways, was seen as the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, rich with natural resources, and full of souls to save or to destroy. Much like some of the commands found in Numbers 33, casting the residents of the promised land as snares or or, or evil, nearly demonic, some of the settlers of America saw the residents of their promised land, the residents of America, as Amorites, those who God had already dedicated to destruction. And if you'd like to see some of this play out in history, I would recommend to you a phenomenal book by William James Jennings called The Christian Imagination. I'll link that book in the show notes. And then we get to the period of manifest destiny where Americans knew that God had given them license to take possession of the entirety of the land from coast to coast. Anyone obstructing this progress was standing in the way of God's chosen people by recasting themselves as the Israelites and the contiguous 48 states as the promised land, our forebears were willing to do whatever was necessary in order to take possession of the land, even if that meant driving out anyone who got in the way. One other means of interpreting the entrance into the promised land comes through the idea of the Underground Railroad. Black slaves would often sing spirituals to one another that were encoded using the Exodus story. This was a means of avoiding suspicion from their owners. Through describing the northern states as Canaan or the promised land, these slaves were also describing, whether implicitly or explicitly, the southern states as Egypt, their owners as Pharaoh, the one keeping them in bondage. 
this tradition has contributed indirectly, but in no small part, to how scholars like James Cone have described black liberation theology. When Moses was in Egypt land, let my people go. We see both danger and opportunity in this history of interpretation of the Israelites' arrival into the promised land. On the one hand, when we begin to see ourselves as the sole inheritors of God's promise, we've missed the point of the Exodus story. Instead, when we are persecuted, when we are oppressed, when we are locked in bondage, well, then we can hope in the God who is the great liberator, the one who is mighty to save, the one who uh, takes the weak and, and frees them from the strong. This God is interested in lifting up the downtrodden, making low the mighty. We need to keep in mind that the Hebrews were seen by those around them as weak, as small, as puny. Uh, We can't use the Exodus narrative to describe those who are obstructing our own selfish progress as Pharaoh or Egypt somehow, or as the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the promised land. Rather, we are called to use the Exodus narrative and and, and the promised land uh, annexation to remind ourselves that God is continually bringing us into this promised land and that we are called to be better rulers of our domain than Pharaoh was of his. Now, getting into this week's reading, much of what is described in Numbers is the visioning and long-term planning Moses does with God and the people as they stand on the threshold of the Promised Land. They need to develop a plan for divvying up uh, they need to develop a plan, excuse me, for divvying up the land between the, the, the tribes. They need to discuss any hiccups that might come in this plan. And they need to find a way of making space for the Levites, who are the priests that weren't eligible to hold land. First, Moses needs to respond to the request of the Reubenites and the Gadites, who want to live on the east side of the Jordan River. The tribes of Reuben and Gad and eventually the half-tribe of Manasseh will be called the Transjordan tribes because they live across the Jordan River from the Promised Land. Before Moses gives permission for them to settle, however, he needs assurance that they aren't settling in order to avoid the fighting in the Promised Land, in order to follow their ancestors in being afraid of those who currently live in the Promised Land. After all, the rest of Israel helped to drive out the inhabitants from the villages they want to settle— Shouldn't they help all of Israel, all of the Israelites drive out the inhabitants of the promised land? After receiving the promise that they would assist with the invasion, Moses is satisfied, allowing their children and their families to begin building lives for themselves as the rest of Israel begins invading the promised land. A summary of places that the Israelites pass through in their wilderness travels comes after this, and while some of the names might be familiar, others are not. One place in particular that uh, we run into in verse 16 of chapter, uh, I believe, 33, uh, is called Kibroth Hata'ava, which literally means graves of desire. This might allude to the quail episode in Numbers 11, where many of the Israelites fell to their death, having stuffed themselves with quail. Each of the places named in this chapter was an important waypoint on the journey so far, a place to which God had led them using the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire in the last 40 years. 
I wonder, what would the summary of your last 40 years look like? Uh, what would the summary of your family's last 40 years look like? Perhaps it wouldn't be as geographically diverse or, or as wide-ranging, but think about the places and the times that God has demonstrated faithfulness to you and your family in the last 40 years. That's what this list is, after all. All the places and ways God has proven covenant love that he promised at Sinai. Now, perhaps it's the unfaithfulness of the Hebrews demonstrated by this history that prompts the Lord's command to Moses about driving out all the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. We've discussed how this text has been received and perhaps twisted in more recent times, and some may find the prospect of the Israelites destroying and driving out the natives of Canaan, even in biblical times, disturbing. We also know that the people of Israel have tended toward finding hope anywhere but in their God. If they have another choice, they always take that other choice, whether that's finding hope in their own strength, hope in the gods of other nations, hope in a king. They regularly cast the Lord Yahweh, their God, aside at any opportunity. Knowing this, it might be for the self-control of the children of Israel that God asked them to chase out the inhabitants of the land. It may be uh, the way that you have to interact with a particularly flirty spouse. Uh, you may have to help them offer, uh, help offer them some ways of maintaining self-control so that they don't give the wrong impression. Whatever the case, God gives Moses some boundaries to work with. And with the assistance of the chieftains or tribal leaders, Moses divides the promised land into the inheritance of the tribes. It's done carefully, with each tribe having an, a proportionate amount of land based on its population. I think it's difficult to imagine this division, and so I found a map that it, it combines both this description and some other descriptions later in Deuteronomy and Joshua to show you where the tribal divisions were. Whether this actually came to pass with the Israelites controlling all this land that's doubtful, um, but but we know what the plan was, what the vision was, what the long-range uh, uh, hope was for Moses and for the people. Now, Levites, the priests among the Israelites, inherited no land. Instead, they were distributed among the tribes proportionally by population, being given cities they could control. This is similar in many ways to the parsonage or manse set aside by a local congregation for a priest or pastor to live in while serving the congregation. Now, the Levites also controlled the cities of refuge, which were sanctuary cities for someone accused of murder or manslaughter. Um, they, such a person could come to these cities to be held safely until a trial could be scheduled. And this seems to be, based on how it's described, a shift in how justice was administered. Based on the description of the avenger of blood, it seems like the Israelites had had before this a vigilante system of justice prior to entering the promised land. If someone had killed a member of my family, for example, it would be incumbent upon me to go find them and kill them in response. Uh, the way that the, the chapter describes this is as a blood sacrifice to prevent the further disgrace of the land, the further pollution of the land by the spilling of blood. Now, the book of Numbers concludes by going again to the daughters of Zelophehad, 
Um, Last week, we read about them receiving an inheritance of land, but there's an issue here. Land is passed through the male lineage, making their land immediately the possession of whichever tribe they marry into. This would negatively impact the tribe of Manasseh, in all likelihood. So Moses develops a rule. And this is a rule not just for the daughters of Zelophehad, but for any woman who finds herself in possession of land going forward. Any woman who possesses land in order to keep it in the family must marry another member of her tribe. This shares some similarities to the law of Leverite marriage, which will become very important in the story of Ruth and which uh, we can see in Deuteronomy 25, I believe, although we'll skip over that in our reading of Deuteronomy. Now, at the very end of Numbers, we're told that the people of Israel are camped on the steps of Moab across the Jordan from Jericho. So the end of Numbers prepares us for the invasion that Joshua will launch first thing after crossing the Jordan. Uh, It's the first battle in the book of Joshua. However, before we cross the Jordan, Moses has a few things to say to the people he's led in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the Greek name for the fifth book of the Torah. Deutero meaning second, plus namas meaning law, so deuteronomos, Deuteronomy, the second telling of the law. At least from chapters 12 through 26, it is a second reading of the law, at least to some extent, although the rest of Deuteronomy contains more rhetoric, more of Moses' preaching to some degree. Um, We'll skip most of chapters 12 through 26 this first go-around, although we'll tackle them when we come back around to some of the law and genealogies at the end of the reading plan. The Hebrew name for this book is Devarim, which means words. In some respects, I think this name fits better. These are the final words of Moses, a shepherd to the people of Israel, spoken before he dies. They're rhetorically structured, they're persuasive, they cast a vision for the people of Israel. And while there's many laws in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy contains sermons. Now, there's some uh, disagreement around when exactly Deuteronomy was written. Some scholars uh, will say that, that Moses wrote it. Others will date the composition of Deuteronomy much later than the time of Moses and argue that this book was written in the time after the northern kingdom, Samaria, sometimes called Israel or Ephraim, fell. That was around 720 BC. We'll get into that uh, as we um, begin learning about the two kingdoms of Israel. I believe that's the beginning of 2022. Uh, these same scholars believe that uh, the the book of Deuteronomy, while it was begun in about 720 BC, it uh, it wasn't completed until just a little before the return from exile, around 535 BC. Now, if the book was written while Israel was in exile, or if a majority of it was put together at that point, there might be some parallels to draw between the generation that came of age in the wilderness and the generation that came of age in exile. Both had parents that didn't honor God, so both are yearning to redouble their efforts to serve and worship the Lord God of Israel. Now, while they aren't embedded in our genome, faithfulness and unfaithfulness do tend to get passed from one generation to another. That's not a hard and fast rule. It does sometimes happen, though. 
Moses' long-term vision is to teach the Israelites how to teach their kids to be faithful with the understanding that the children will teach their children and so on and so forth. For this reason, Moses uses lofty rhetoric as he describes the journey through the wilderness, reminding the people standing before him of the rebellion of their parents, all of whom died in the wilderness. Yet these people, the ones who were children then, the ones who stand before Moses now, they've become the leaders of the people and so much must shoulder the guilt of the parents. While they aren't judged for what their parents did, they do bear the consequences of their parents' actions. This is an important point around leadership. Uh, when we become leaders of a community, we may not have done the things the community is known for, but we will become known for those things that the community is known for, whether or not we've done them. That's why even though presidents don't make jobs, we talk about the jobs created by uh, George Bush, by Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Joe Biden. Um, it's not them who's doing it, but as the leader, they have to take responsibility for it. I wonder about this sometimes. What are the consequences that my child will need to bear because of my actions? Uh, not all of our children, by the way, are biological. Uh, what consequences do we inflict on those who learn from us? We can never fully know, just as we can't know the blessings that we pass along. But we can take seriously the responsibility we bear to be a beacon of faithfulness for future generations. What we do, how we act here on earth, carries an impact. I wonder what your long-term vision is, and I wonder how you are on this day preparing for where God is taking you. How will your children, both in uh, your children in body and your children in spirit, bless or curse you because of how you impacted them? As we follow Jesus, let us concentrate on the long-range vision that we have of earth and heaven being reunited by God without obsessing over exactly when or what it will, it will take for that to happen. We are called to be thinking about the reunification of heaven and earth. We're also called to live in the present. Uh, so my charge to you this week is do right by those who come after you, whatever that may look like. That's all for Numbers 32 through 36, along with Deuteronomy 1. Next week, we'll read Deuteronomy 2 through 7, where Moses describes the rest of the wilderness wanderings, as well as the epiphany at Sinai, reminding the Israelites of who they are and whose they are. May God bless you in your reading of Scripture.